Good job up here, guys. I love uh, I love when we do. I kind of I just kind of love the way we worship. We have the lights up. There's uh, the beautiful fluorescence. We're not trying to manipulate your mood, and just you can kind of watch you can kind of watch the crowd kind of melt. And I get in the same spot. I'm like busy talking to all of you, and like, okay, do we have the announcements lined up? Are, you know, is everything working? And then the band begins to play, and I'm like, oh, yeah, they're playing. And I knew they were going to play. And then, like, as they start to play, about halfway through the first song, I'm like, oh, I'm singing. And, uh, and so then the announcements come, and then the next couple of songs, I just find myself more and more just beginning to worship, and my heart seems to get right. And it just, I, I, I like watching you do the same thing. Uh, if you have your Bible, open to John chapter 12. We're going to be, I'm sorry, not John 12, John 7. We're going to look at a couple of verses in John 7, and, uh, and then we're going to go back in time even further, and we're going to go to Leviticus. But right now, Open your Bible to John chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at the second half of verse 37 uh, and verse 38 also. If you've got that, if you're, able to, uh, if you're able to join in standing up, would you do that for me right now? And we're going to look at these words, and I'm going to read them together. Here we go. Ready? If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Lord, as we prayed a second ago, as we come to you now, we ask that tonight you would truly reveal yourself as the only one who can satisfy. And Lord, if you are in our hearts and in our lives, may we taste of that river of spring of life that flows out because of you. And Lord, if you are not in our lives, would you make it painfully obvious that we are dying of thirst and we need you. Reveal yourself to us tonight through your word. Speak through me, Father. Move through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Now, let's go back to the book of Leviticus I appreciate you humoring me. I was thinking today as I was going over things, uh, I was thinking this is a little bit selfish because I, I, haven't, I haven't taken a poll in a while of like, what messages do you need to hear? What's going on in your life? And that's one of the liberties we can do on Tuesday nights. Tuesday nights, I can address specific things going on in your life that are specific to you in your stage of life. And we don't have to worry about like the people walking in, pushing strollers or the like the elderly folks coming in or whatever else. Okay, it's just you. And we can be very specific with you. And that's, I love this. Uh, but I just am glad that you haven't walked away as I've wanted to go back to Leviticus for a couple of weeks because there is this red thread, I call it, and I'm not the only one who's called it that. A lot of people have that ties this whole book together from Genesis to Revelation. It's one story and it's one, it's, it's really a ballad. If we were to put it, a, if we were to call it a, a type of song, it would be a ballad. It's this story that moves and ebbs and flows with these tragedies in it and these heroes in it, all culminating around this one thing, this wanting of all of humanity. And the wanting is found in Jesus Christ. And then he shows up and the whole Bible points to that. And then he leaves and sends his Holy Spirit, but he 
promises over and over again, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. And we see this whole ebb and flow of the story take place. But there's not a part that's like stands on its own. There's not, there's not, a, there's not a, like a book of Jonah that's just about like a disobedient prophet um, or, uh, you know, the book of Nehemiah that's about being a good leader. Like none of it does that. It's been taught that way, but none of it stands on its own. It's all intricately interwoven in God revealing himself to us and showing what he's going to do. And he began to set that up a long time ago. So in the book of Leviticus, last week we looked at chapter 16. Our recording got a little goofed up, so I think I'm going to re-record that, I believe, uh, because I think these two chapters seem to unlock a lot of the New Testament, especially Jesus. But let's look at chapter 23. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, um, and you'll thank me for that later. Uh, you have to develop a taste for it, uh, and I'm just like throwing you in. And so... What happens in Leviticus 23, I heard a guy named Ray Vanderlaan, one of the most influential teachers in my life. Uh, he's, he's a guy out of Michigan. He was a high school teacher. He did some stuff for Focus on the Family, and he kind of got like a little name for himself, and, uh, and he was never really seeking one, but he's just this incredible Bible teacher, and he really digs into the Jewish roots, the Hebrew roots of the faith. At that point in my life, I heard him teach, and I thought, that's what I've been missing. I, didn't, I would skip the Gospels and go to other books because Jesus just didn't make that much sense to me. I believed in him. I knew what he did on the cross. But there's so much, there's so much Old Testament in Jesus that if you don't understand that, you can't understand him. And this guy began to teach, and he taught on Leviticus 23, and he called it God's calendar. So if you're taking notes or if you're writing your Bible, Leviticus 23, it's God's calendar. It's his, like... 12-month planner, um, except for it was the Hebrew calendar, so it was a 10-month planner, but still, it was still, you know, 365 days-ish. Every couple of years, they have leap months, if you were just curious. But anyway, uh, they miss a few days. But Leviticus 23 is God's calendar. This is how God set up for the Jewish people to live throughout the year. And so he lists all of the, the holidays. The first one is Sabbath. And he says, and that's in verse three, he says, we're going to do this every week. This is one holiday we're going to do every week. So every week, once a week, you're not going to work. And we did a whole series on Sabbath. Sabbath is still taught. It's affirmed all through the Bible in the New Testament. Sabbath is a thing. He said, let's keep doing that. It's a good thing. Sabbath is a gift. Jesus affirmed the Sabbath. And so, uh, now, the, the Passover is, starts in verse 4. And many of you know about the Passover. Passover is in there along with first fruits, which starts in verse 9. There's a third holiday mixed in there also. It's Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. All of those go together, and those are all holidays that deserve their own like 30 or 40 minute message because they're all super important and it's really painful for me to just move past them, but I'm moving past them. Self high five. Okay, now then we get into the Feast of Weeks. It too really deserves its own, we just shouldn't even talk about it. The Feast of Weeks, it's Feast of Weeks. Okay, real quick. Feast of Weeks, Shavuot is what it's called in Hebrew. The Feast of Weeks is an incredible holiday. God gives us this formula. He's like, so after Passover, you're going to wait seven weeks, 49 days, and then you're going to add one more day to it, 50. He just doesn't talk like that. And so like 50, 50 days after Passover, you're going to have this holiday. And then all through the Old Testament, this holiday is like outlined and explained. And then for some reason, when people got to the New Testament and Christians came about, they just totally forgot about it. It's called Pentecost. Penta means 50, cost means days. Pentecost is not like a thing that started a denomination. 
Pentecost is an Old Testament holiday. It's the Feast of Weeks. And so, okay, just side note. Look, this, this deserves its own, like, serious, like, multiple part deal. When the disciples, the disciples really wanted Jesus to come back during their lifetime, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. And so Jesus, he is uh, crucified, dead, buried, raised from the dead, all on Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Pentecost comes, what happens? That's 10 days after he ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes. 3,000 people get saved. That too is its own message. But we'll stop right there. So 3,000 people get saved. The next holiday coming up, they, I'm sure they were like, he's four out of four. Like he'll be back pretty quick. And so he didn't show up. And so the next three holidays have not yet been fulfilled by the Messiah. And that's its whole nother Bible study. But I'm moving on. So here we go. Okay. One is the Feast of Trumpets. That's the Feast of the Trumpets. Uh, there's, they're not even told why they do it. They're just told to blow horns. Um, and so, and if you don't believe me, read in verse 23 through 25. Then you have the Day of Atonement, which we taught on last week, which is incredible. Day of Atonement has partly happened and then he's atoned for us, but it hasn't completely happened. It hasn't been completely fulfilled. Whole nother message for a whole nother day. I'm telling you, come back. Um, and then there's the Feast of Booths, and that's the seventh and the last holiday. That's the one we're going to talk about tonight. So, I'm telling you, all of these just like reek of uh, like the, 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 just this powerful aroma that like if you get anywhere near it, you're just like, is that Jesus? I smell again. Like every one of these are Jesus holidays and they are super clear all throughout the Bible. And as you see them play out in the New Testament, you're like, he set up every one of these holidays way back when the people were wandering around in the wilderness to prepare the way for his son to come and redeem the people. So, the Feast of Booths. Let's take a look at that one at least. And the Lord spoke to Moses. I'm in verse 33 saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying on the 15th day of the seven month for the seven days and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. Booths, your version may have tabernacle or tents or houses. Um, basically, they were tents is what this is. It's the feast of tents. It's the feast of camping. That's what this is. So for seven days, God is commanding them to camp. Now, some of you are like, best holiday ever. Others of you are like, so glad we're here and now. Uh, but whichever you are, it's the feast of camping. And so for seven days, it's the feast of tents to the Lord. On the first day will be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Verse 36, for seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present food offerings to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly and you shall not do any work. So, I hope you saw in there a little bit of how God talks to people. He said, it's a seven-day feast. On the eighth day, you're going to do this. I don't know why the Lord talks to the people like that, but that's how he talks. Take it for what it's worth. It's an eight-day feast. He says, for seven days, you'll feast like this, but it's an eight-day feast. Because on the eighth day, you're going to do this. So, they, these are the appointed feasts, starting in verse 37 through 30 uh, and 38. He, he says some other stuff. The Lord does. Then he comes back to, in verse 39 and finishes the thought on the Feast of Booths, verse 39. 
On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees. Don't we have a couple of, um, a, a couple of florists in here? Do we have... Okay, you're here. Yes, okay. Yes, we have, we have a couple of florists in here. We have one here tonight. This is for you. Ready? Okay. Uh, so, you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever. Uh, sorry, verse, where, where did I miss? Oh, okay, verse 40. I skipped that. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. Let's pause right there. What a weird command. God basically said, here's a bouquet I want you to make and I want you to rejoice in front of me for seven days. Like, we look at the clock when the message is hitting like the 25 minute mark, we're like, how much longer do you think he has? Like, this is seven days of waving branches like a palm branch, a myrtle branch, a willow branch. Like you have these branches and you bind them together. Now, did God say how to do it? No. Did God say like how long you have to wave it? No. Maybe was the wave invented there? Maybe. Like, I don't know. Like you're going to get bored after seven days. So you're like, far side, you first. Like, you know, I, I mean, like you could just see like, all right, we got it. Like, could you chant? He didn't say you couldn't. You can rejoice. Uh, don't boo, but like you can do all the other stuff. And so this is a teaching moment right here. I had a 50-year-old man yesterday talk to me about somebody in their 20s. He said, we meet all the time. And I said, yeah. And he said, I just need your advice. And I said, what do you, what's going on? He said, we meet all the time. And all the time he wants me to like make all his decisions for him. And he wants me to do it in the form of godly counsel. Hey, this is happening in my life. What should I do? Hey, this is happening. What should I do? Hey, this is happening. What should I do? And I said, so you're like a, you're like a spiritual Google for him. And he said, yeah, that's what, that's what it feels like, like a spiritual Google. Let me just go ahead and tell you. The Lord is really good at giving us just enough that we have to come back to get more. And if we rely on me or Jason Dees or, or Louie down the street or your parents or your grandparents or the, the internet search from that Christian place to make all your decisions, it's no longer a spiritual decision. It's just couched that way just to make yourself feel better. The Lord all through the scriptures only gives a skeleton for people. And he says, I want you to put the flesh on it. I want you to learn to be in communion with me and communion with other believers to be able to put the flesh on this thing I told you to do. And he does that all the time in scripture. He does it here. And so, uh, then he says, you shall dwell in booths, verse 42, which is tents for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths or tents that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feast of the Lord. And so 
What, you have to ask, what is the point of the, or the purpose of the Feast of Booths? The purpose was given to us in the next to last verse there, and that is to rejoice and remember what God has done and trust that he will keep showing up. That's the point. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through, and if you're curious, you can go ahead and write in your notes, Numbers chapter 29, because in Numbers chapter 29, God gives more instructions on this feast. Now remember, we are going somewhere, and Jesus is in this picture. We just don't see him yet. So, so follow with me, and I promise when we get there, you'll be like, mm, I didn't see that coming. Um, because that's how the Lord works. And he, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, the Bible says, it is the glory of kings to search it out. And the Lord hides himself in these things, and it's up to us to get the shovels out and to start digging and look for him. And so, in Leviticus 29, or Numbers 29, which I won't go into, God gives more instructions for the feast. Actually, here's what I do want you to do um, in Numbers chapter 29. Just with the people right around you real quick, I want you to try to count the number of sacrifices that are given over these eight days. Just a quick, just a quick little peruse through Numbers 29. I'll give you about 60 seconds to try to count the number of sacrifices that are made during this feast. It, any guesses? How many? 151. That's close. That's good. That's good. Let's ratchet it up a little bit. 187. I think that's about the number. It's, it's, so the way that it's written, it's hard to tell. There's at least 70 cows, 70 bulls that are killed. That's a lot of, that's a lot of bull. Like, I don't, there's other ways. It's a lot of bull. Uh, there's like, I mean, you got, you got these bulls, you got these sheep, you got these goats, you got so many sacrifices and every day has a sacrifice. So what I want to walk you through is what that feast looked like as it progressed down the road a little bit. Because remember, you had the tabernacle, which is another tent, another booth. That was, that was when they were in the wilderness and they were wandering for 40 years. Once they get established, they boot God out as king. They pick a human as king. That king gets rejected. Then David becomes king. He wants to build a real building for the Lord to be the temple. He can't do it. Solomon, his son, does it. Then this feast begins to take place again. But that temple is destroyed. The second temple is built by Herod the Great, the Herod of Christmas. Once that temple is built, this thing kicks into high gear. Because Herod, when he came in, he said, oh, you know what? We, he conquered just like the Greeks did. Oh, yeah, you can keep your worship. I'll help you do your worship. I'm also going to introduce to you some of my culture. And then you pick which culture you like best. And slowly but surely, he won the hearts and the minds of people because he introduced all kinds of pagan things. And they went, they went the pagan way. That's about the time Jesus comes in. But right about that same time, temple worship had become a big deal. And so what happened was they called this... Uh, they called this the biggest party in ancient Israel. Now you think about it, 
all the other feasts had come and gone, the day of atonement, the most sober day of the whole year, was just a few days before this. You have the day of atonement. You got the trumpets where you're blowing the trumpets right before the day of atonement. And these are all in the fall. It's been several months since you had any other feast. All the other feasts are in the spring. And so the spring has come and gone. The fall is here. We've had the harvest. And so the harvest is done. The day of atonement is done. The day of the, the feast of trumpets is done. And so what's left? It's time to party. And God gives them a really great party. He says, for seven days, you're going to party plus one. And so here's what they ended up doing. Because God gives <clears throat> a skeleton, they begin to flesh it out. And so I'm partly going to read and partly going to tell you. But what they had done, they basically developed three parts to the feast, three parts of the ceremony. And these happened every day. One, just before dawn, each day, they went out the east gate of the temple and they faced east towards the sun because that's where the sun rises. I don't know why this is east to me. Um, but actually... It is east. Okay, here we go. Um, and so, like, they faced east, and they said, our forefathers worshipped the sun and turned our backs on God, but we, and they would turn west towards the temple, and they would say, but we choose you, God, and they would enter into the temple from the east going towards the west, towards the temple. So that was one thing that they did, and they did it every morning, and all these people are camping, and so they're like, what else are we going to do? I didn't sleep good. Did you sleep good? No, let's get up early, because we're camping. And so they go out and they watch and they're celebrating. They're like, that's right. We don't worship the God. We worship, we don't worship the sun God. We worship the God. And so they head in. The second part was at night. And at night, they had four huge menorahs that were set up to illuminate the whole temple. Now, these are monsters so big that they would set up ladders to climb up them. And they would get the old guys to climb up. They would be like, you're up, Grandpa. And so they tell these stories. There's ancient writings about the stories of the men with the long gray beards and how the kids would cheer them on as they would climb the ladders with buckets of olive oil to light the lamps. And they would climb up the ladder and they were like, whoa, careful, Grandpa. And then Grandpa would like hoist up the, the, all, all the olive oil because that's what you light lamps with. And he would pour the olive oil in and bonfires. It's camping. And so there's this giant light. And then they would dance and they would party. They would have a good time. And then the third thing they would do was called the rite of the water libation. And so on the first morning of Sukkot, which is the Hebrew name for this, on the first morning, the priest would walk out of the temple, go down to the pool of Siloam, and take a giant golden pitcher. And they would dip the pitcher in water, and they would bring it back in. They would go towards the temple through all the people, and the people would see the water going in, and they would go, and they would pour the water, and they would say, God, only you are the one who who gives water. You provide the water. You provided the water this past year, and that's why we had a harvest. And so we're celebrating, God, that you gave us this harvest. And they would do that for seven days. But then on the eighth day, they did it a little bit different. I'll come to that in just a second. They also had figured out by this point what to do with those four pieces of tree things. They would take the four pieces of tree, they would bind them together, there was a clear prescription on what to bind together and what each one of them meant, and they would take them and they would wave them before the Lord at certain times during the feast, and that was called the lulav. And so they would wave the lulav before the Lord. As they waved the lulav before the Lord, they would cite Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, which is called the Hallel. You ready for this? Some of you know this, 
verses, some of you don't. You put them together, what do you have? You're saying the Hallel and waving the Lulav. Hallel, Lulav. Hallelujah. That's where it comes from. And so, when we sing, just like we sang a second ago, Hallelujah in the song, it's definitely a Jewish idea, but it's not stand there and just sing. It's this act of incorporating the scriptures and being physical and present before the Lord and celebrating him. That is the Hallel Lulav. That is the Hallelujah. Now, on the last day, the eighth day, the priest would walk out to the pool of Siloam and he would take his picture and he would dip it, he would take his picture and he would dip it in the water and he would take it back in to the temple and he would walk around the altar and then he would pour it but nothing would come out. Because he didn't put it in and he would say, because they would say, they would say, Hoshana, the Lord save us. God, we need you. We need you to provide the water for us. And he would go back out and he would go and he would ritually dip his pitcher in the pool of Siloam, but he wouldn't really. And he would walk back in and he would pour an empty pitcher. And he would do that one time, two times, three times, four times, five times, six times. And on the seventh time, he would walk over and he would take his pitcher and he would walk into the temple, and they knew. And this, this, day, uh, this day is called the, the greatest day of the feast. It's the Hoshana Rabbah, the great God save us moment. And so they would walk in, and he would take his pitcher. This time it was full, and he would walk around the altar, and he would walk around the altar one time, two times, three times, four times, five times, six times seven times. And on the seventh time, he would hold the picture up and everybody's at this crescendo of saying, Hoshana, 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 Lord, save us, Lord, save us, Lord, save us. And when he raises the picture, everything gets quiet. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he messed up the whole church service. That eighth day, the great day, at the seventh picture, when everyone is waiting to see, will the priest pour out water because only God can provide the water we need to live? Our Savior, our Rabbi Jesus, stands up and yells to the whole congregation of people, I'm the water. And whoever thirsts let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine the audacity for a man? And by the way, the whole chapter of, of chapter 7 is dedicated to Jesus at this feast. You need to read the whole chapter to see what this is all about. He's, he is delayed in coming to the feast. He comes in what some say is a disguise initially to the, defeat, to the feast because they wanted to kill him. His life is in danger at this point. They were jealous of him. They were mad of him, the religious leaders. And he has the audacity on the last day to stand up and ultimately say, 
If you're thirsty, you need to come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in verse 39, John gives us some commentary and he says, now this he said about the spirit whom we believe in him were to receive. Yet as for this, yet for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so this red line from Leviticus all the way to John 7, this feast that was established in the desert at Mount Sinai is now fully coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. Every one of those feasts in Leviticus 23 unlocks this piece of who Jesus is and how God had set him up from way, way before Mary and Joseph and uh, Nazareth were ever even thought of. And Jesus rises to the occasion. The idea that I was thinking about tonight as I was thinking about this verse is can, can we really can we really change ourselves? Can we really better ourselves? Because the claim here is that only Jesus can change a person. If you're in John 7 and you're looking at those verses, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow living waters. Jesus' claim here is that Anyone who is thirsty can be satisfied, but only in him. We can never better ourselves. We can just become more of what we are. Uh, I've been getting a little bit ready on the side for... uh, a series coming up in about a month on spiritual warfare. I think that's a, su- a subject we don't talk a lot about in the modern Protestant church, and I think it's as real today as it ever has been. But I stumbled across this, uh, this modern-day take on C.S. Lewis's old book, The Screwtape Letters, and it so applies to this. You see, we think that we can change ourselves. We think we can better ourselves. Sometimes we do that spiritually. We're like, well, I'll go to church, and I'll read my Bible, and I'll quote a couple of verses, and probably that thing at my job will work out. Is that the Lord changing you or is that you using the Lord as like a rabbit's foot? And I think the enemy really wants us to think that we can do what we need to do a little bit more on our own than we can without the Lord. So let me just read you this modern day take. This is the older demon talking to a younger demon who is... uh, who is trying to manipulate this human. And so that's the angle this is written from if you're not familiar with the screw tape letters. So when they say things like the enemy, um, they're talking about God. Uh, So it's written from a demonic standpoint about the humans and the Lord. So I'll read it to you. We, on the other hand, love them just the way they are. This is a demon saying we love the humans just like they are. We want them to be more like them. In fact, we want them to self-actualize, to give full reign to their natural expressions, their authentic selves, to ever be who they are because as only a handful of times of the humans ever truly consider that they are born ours, not his. 
We wish them to finish as they began, our children, our followers, our food. We want mobs. He wants a church. Raw passion, as you have noted of late, is never so useful as in groups. They travel places in herds that they would never go alone. And stampede is always a most effective means for destruction. Through headquarters, carefully crafted half-truths, we stir them, shepherd them, incite them, and then lead them and then lend them a match. When feelings, not thoughts, when our spirits, not his, drive them, mobs soon become monstrous. Carefully, or consider fully the potential of mobs. Has not the excitement of men produced the most wonderful achievement in human history? In the heat of the moment, some bystanders felt a sudden rush of passion and roared with all of hell, crucify him, crucify him. The purpose of the Feast of Booths, of Sukkot, is to rejoice and remember what God has done and to trust that he's going to keep doing it. Let me just in the last minute or two break down a thought from John 7. I hope you're, you're looking at it or maybe we've got it up on the screen. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the great feast, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The way that a person becomes changed if a person is thirsty, they have to believe. They're supposed to come, they're supposed to taste and see and drink that God is good, and then they are to believe. And in verse 39, the person who has believed, that person will receive the Holy Spirit of God, and that Holy Spirit of God is evidence that God is changing them. And so we can have a little Feast of Booths moment where we rejoice and we remember and we hope that God continues the work that he began because without him we're hopeless. But if you go back to the Hebrew idea of what does it mean to believe? Now let's think about this. The demons believe in God. Satan believes in God. The demons believe Jesus died. The demons believe he rose again. Satan believes that Jesus died. Satan believes that he rose again. Is your belief any different than their belief? If your belief is no different than their belief, then I cannot assure you of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If your belief is different then you should be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's how you know the difference. The word belief goes way, way back. It was a nomadic term. It was a term for people who lived in tents. And the word is, uh, the word is aman. And so this word aman is, it's an interesting word. When you put a tent peg in your hand and you drive it into the ground, those of you who have done this before, you know, if you put it in the wrong kind of ground, it's going to just pop out. 
If you put it in the right kind of ground, it goes in a little bit, and then you have to keep driving it, and then you drive it a little bit more and more, and you drive it at an angle, and you know, come hell or high water, my tent will still be here. I may not, but my tent will. Like you know, it is in a good spot. What that is called is Amon. The idea of a tent peg being firmly placed is the word Amon. That same word, Amon, firm, is the word for believe. Now, Hebrew is a poor language, so each word gets multiple uses. The idea here is this. The idea is that Abraham, for instance, in Genesis 15, when he believed God and it was considered to him righteousness, Abraham didn't believe a promise of God. Abraham didn't believe a verse about God. Abraham was firm in his following God. Because belief is intimately related with doing. And I promise you, whatever you believe is what you do. So let me ask you, I'll just put it in layman's term. How firm is your relationship with Christ? How firm does he hold your life? How firm do you cling to him? If you really want to do different things than you have been doing, if you want to be a different person than you have been. The only way for that to happen, according to Jesus, is to be firmly bound to him in all that you do, in all that you trust, in all that you love. It is an all or nothing. Heather on vacation was reading a book. What if Jesus really meant that? Like, it's a true thing. Like, what if he really meant that you really do have to be fully, firmly his in order for life to change? The demons do not have a firm belief in Jesus. They have a factual belief in Jesus. Satan does not have a firm holding on with all he has belief in Jesus, Satan has a factual belief in Jesus. Yes, he was the son of God. Yes, he died. Yes, he rose again. But he still thinks he can trump him. He still thinks he can beat him. Jesus is all over this festival. He's the ultimate shelter. He's the living water. He washes away our sin. He's the light of the world, like that big menorah they used to climb and light. Jesus is now preparing our permanent homes, he tells us in John 14. As the Israelites left the bondage of Egypt, we leave the bondage of sin. And it's even possible that Jesus was born on the Feast of Booths, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. John 1, he tabernacled among us. I believe he was conceived probably in the winter, and therefore he would have been born in the fall, and so there's a very good chance that Jesus could have even been born on this feast. So my question, outside of just the knowledge I hope you gained as someone who's trying to pursue the Lord, tying in from Leviticus all the way to John chapter seven, is Jesus says so clearly, if you're thirsty, you come and you drink. 
And anyone who is firmly clinging to him will have the Holy Spirit, which is represented by streams of living water flowing out of them. Their lives will be changed. They'll never be the same. They'll never be thirsty again. And the question is, is that you? Is it your friends that would call themselves Christians? Maybe tonight is a good night to pray for somebody who you know, man, they know a lot about Jesus, but there's not this firm holding on to him, the belief that the Bible describes. Maybe you've wandered a little bit in your firmness in holding on to him. Maybe tonight is the night to remember and rejoice over what he has done and ask forgiveness for wandering away and firmly holding on to something else. But my hope is at the end of the day, you're certainly holding on to him, but you're just invigorated by this idea that I serve a Messiah who on the eighth day of this incredible feast would have the audacity to stand up in a packed house and say, I'm the one this whole feast is about. Now that's a guy I will follow all day long. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for the boldness and the beauty of Jesus, waiting till that last day, waiting till that pitcher was about to be poured, waiting till the church fell silent as the priest began to pour and standing up and saying, if anyone is thirsty, come to him. Because whoever believes in him, springs of living water will well up in them and flow from them. Lord, if we really wanna be different, if we really wanna be changed, it simply is the belief in you, and you do the rest. So Lord, we trust that you will finish the work you started. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.